Trigger warning. This episode contains discussions of suicidal ideations, domestic and sexual abuse, extreme poverty, and homelessness. Please be gentle with yourself when listening. I didn't write Surviving Home thinking, you know, I'm going to sit down and write a book about my trauma. That just wasn't what was happening. That trauma was what was coming out of me at the time. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Katrina Canyon, author of the poetry collection Surviving Home, a collection that came together after Katrina was tricked into being committed to a psychiatric ward by her own therapist. I go to the emergency room at New York Presbyterian, and when I get there, the one I said, yeah, my therapist said that I'm here to get assessed for medication, and the woman said, okay, hold on, and a police officer comes out and says, follow me, and at the point I said, oh, crap, <laughs> I'm getting ready to get locked up. Covering heavy topics from growing up in poverty to witnessing and being a victim of domestic and sexual abuse. Katrina readily admits that she is still reconciling her past with her present. She explains why she doesn't believe she has to be happy. Plus, how she became a poet laureate at age 29 with no formal education. And how she shifted her own perspective by claiming herself as a poet. That and more is next when Black and Published continues. So Katrina, when did you know that you were a writer? Well, I've been writing my whole life since I was a child, but there is this uh, fear that if you say that you're a writer, that someone will test you on it. So you don't really say that you're a writer. But I think that I was close to 30 before I actually let words like that come out of my mouth before I said, I'm a poet, because I really was afraid of being judged. But I got to this point of thinking to myself, I have to be who I am, and I can't be ashamed of that. And if people want to challenge me on that statement, then let them come. When you say you were afraid that people might try to test you on it, do you mean as in like having work ready to share before you were ready to share? Like, explain that. I think it was that I was afraid that people would ask me, well, where did you study? How did you learn how to be a poet? And I did have that. I had a little bit of that because I grew up in L.A. with virtually no education for the longest time. I didn't go to college until I was 40. You know, I was 29 when I became Poet Laureate of Sunland Tahunga in Los Angeles. And there were people who said, well, where did you study? Where did you go to school? And then you could just see it in their face when I said, I'm from the streets. I didn't study anywhere except from my own experience. And 
there was this kind of lack of acceptance uh, where, well, she's not really a poet because she doesn't have an MFA. You know, back during that time around the late 90s and 2000s, being a Black woman in L.A., a Black poet in L.A., with qualifications like that is, you know, a hard sell. Unless, you know, if you're a slam poet, you know, that's different. You can be a slam poet, but a traditional Bones poet, it is a hard sell when you don't have a degree. So then you just mentioned that you didn't go to college to do, I guess, the formal education part of it until you were 40, but you claim the title as 30. So what is the difference between those two decades for you from when you claimed it and when you decided to study? Well, I've always loved poetry and I've always written poetry. And when I was 30, I found myself just very unhappy and just at a crossroads where I was saying, I'm not being my authentic self. I was working in a law firm and I hated it. And my mother-in-law sent me this book, um, What Color Is Your Parachute? And when I got through it, it talks about going back to who you were as a child and what you truly loved. And when I did that and said to myself, what do I truly love? I said, well, I love the written word. I love poetry. I had stacks and stacks of journals with just poetry in them that I've been writing in since I was a teenager. And so looking at myself at 30 and saying, okay, I have like 30 piles of journals here. All I do in my spare time is read poetry. I'm a poet. And even though even though at that point I hadn't published anything or been to a single poetry reading, I claimed that. I claimed who I was. And I stood up and said, okay, this is who I am. I just had all of this language in me that had to get on paper. And then when I was 40 and I went to college, I got my bachelor's in English International Studies and Creative Writing. I learned a, a lot about creative writing and it changed who I was as a writer. And then when I decided to, whether or not to go into an MFA program or go into an international studies program, at that point, I, I said, I don't need the MFA. I'm a poet. I don't need this title to tell me that that's who I am. And instead, I decided that I wanted to learn more about being Black in America, about systemic racism across all spectrums around the world. And, and that's what I did. And I think that informed my writing more than an MFA would have. First, I love that you said basically fuck you to the MFA program. I really do. And you found your way to publishing while debating it and deciding against it. So I love that part of your story. Um, I have two questions. One, did you feel a shift in how you identified and felt in your own body and your own self once you claimed that you were a writer and you were a poet over yourself before you had any formal study just by examining and going back to what you loved? I did. I 
I did feel this shift. I felt really strong and empowered in that. It felt as if I had been in this box. And when I acknowledged who I was, it felt like I had taken like all of these um, costumes and masks that were weighing me down and just said, here I am. And to go out and and share my poetry after having that realization was frightening. But I wanted to be a part of the community of writers and community of poets. So I went out there and I started reading poetry and ended up just having a life and friendships and relationships that I am so happy to have. You know, I have friends that I've had since that first moment I walked out on the stage at Midnight Special Bookstore in Santa Monica. And I am grateful to that every day. Okay. But you said you became the Sunland Tahunga California Poet Laureate when you were 29. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At that point, I had been publishing and I had gone to a few readings and I had taken some workshops on spoken word. And there was a friend of mine and she came to me with this application and she says, hey, you know, you know that Sunland Tahanga has a poet laureate and they're looking for a poet laureate. And she goes, yeah, apply. And so I kind of did it out of politeness to say, okay, I'm going to apply, but I'm 29 and I've only read it a few places and I've only been published. I, at that point, I think I had been published maybe 10 times. But That's a lot. Well, at the time, I didn't know that. <laughs> it was like 10 times. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that at the time. So when I applied and, and I got called to go in and for the interview and everything uh and they for Sunland Tahanga Poet Laureate they rank you on all these different things like how many times have you been published uh how active are you in the community and I was really active because I had kids I was like coaching basketball and doing PTA and all of these other things so uh so then when I got up and I read my poetry, I remember being as sick as a dog. I had like this fever and a sore throat. And I was saying to my husband, I'm like, my throat is so sore. I'm not going to be able to do it. But then when I got on that stage, it was just like, I became a different person and I lived in the poems. Hmm. And, And I got up on that stage and I gave my reading and when I left that stage, I, I walked off and I said, I think I just became the poet laureate of Sunland Tahanga. Because you just saw everybody's face with that like mouth wide open. And I was really surprised by their reaction because I learned to do spoken word from Devin Johnson. But he um, did um, that show on HBO with a bunch of slam poets. Deaf Poetry Jam? That one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he was responsible for that. And so he would train like a whole group of poets and I was one of them. 
and that was kind of new back then. So when I went up and with the training he gave me, and the mouse just dropped, and and I became poet laureate of Sunland Tahanga. Were some of the poems that you performed to become poet laureate? Were they some of the ones that are now in Surviving Home, or were these different poems? There is one poem during that time, and these poems in Surviving Home I wrote when I was suffering from a, a horrible bout of depression, and I wrote the, these poems in the hospital, uh, except for uh, the poem, I Say You Can't Go Home Again. That poem I wrote during the time I was Poet Laureate. Okay. So you just mentioned previously that you wrote a lot of these poems when you were in a deep bout of depression and were hospitalized. Why did you want to publish them? Well, when I finished the writing, I I wouldn't say finished writing these poems. I was sitting and looking at them and I said to myself, I think this is a book. And I sent them to my mentor from St. Louis University. And I said to her, I think this is a book. And she came back to me and she said, yes, this is definitely a book. And I said, okay, I'm going to start seeing if I can get some of these poems published in different journals and see if if I do have a reasonable collection of poetry here. So I got them published in different journals and then it it sat around for a few years where I'd say to myself, oh, I need to see about getting my book published. And then finally, last year, I said, okay, that this is it. I'm going to January 1st, I'm going to start sending this book out. So that's what I did. Start January 1st. I started sending the book out. It got accepted something like January 22nd. And I was just really excited about it. I was like, oh my goodness. I didn't I didn't realize it would go so fast. And I feel like everything has gone so fast since. <laughs> Is it because of all the years it took to get to this point? Like, when did you start? Like, after your hospitalization, like, when was that and that you decided that this was a book and that you were going to start trying to get it published in individual journals to get to this point? I was in the hospital in April, May, June of 2017. And that's when I wrote that chunk of poetry. And I didn't sit down to write these poems. I have a writing routine where I'll sit down in the morning and I'll do some writing. And sometimes I have a poem comes to me, sometimes it doesn't. And that's been my routine close to every day of my life. Mm-hmm. And when I got into the hospital and I was talking to the psychiatrist about the sadness and all of the things that were weighing me down, he said, you're a poet, right? And I didn't at that point when he told me to, but there were other poets in the hospital who were also suffering from depression. And they had a group that were meeting and writing And I said, well, I'm going to go sit with these poets. And so I went to sit with these poets in the hospital. And I kind of said, fine, I will write. 
I, if that's what they want me to do, I will write. And I sat down and just started writing just poem after poem after poem. And I only stopped either to read or write more poems. That was kind of my routine until I left the hospital. And so that's what these poems are, is a collection of that. All right. You said January 22nd, like of last year is when, you know, you got the call that the book was going to become a book and everything has gone really fast. What do you mean by really fast and what has that process been like for you? Well, when... The approval came in that, you know, this is going to be a book and then the contracts started coming in and then there's the editing process and all of this was done. And I had a book, you know, on the shelves by October 28th of the same year. Oh, wow. That That is very fast. So, yeah, it was just kind of this snowball and it's been a really wonderful journey to see so many people, especially Black women, take a lot from this book and say, you're telling my story. It's things that we don't talk about as Black women, the vulnerability, the the trauma, because we sit in that stereotype of strong Black women and we don't go there. You know, I was in the hospital with another Black woman in my support group, and we were both there with this sense of shame because Black women don't go to the hospital. I remember, you know, my mom says therapy was a luxury for white women. So we don't think about that as Black women, that we can have breakdowns or go to therapy or, you know, it's taken us to now to to think about self-care, to think to think about doing things like meditation and yoga because, you know, we're supposed to be carrying the load. All right. So I want to get to the book, but I also I want to ask if you don't mind sharing. Was there something specific that triggered your depression? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I work in children's rights and... I was working on this issue with girls in Central America and trying to talk my boss into looking at the situation. And, you know, she says, Katrina, I understand that this is a serious issue, but you're going to have to convince me why the situation with these girls is more important than what, say, what's going on with the children in Africa with AIDS. And... So I had been pushing back and forth on this, and I had gotten really excited when President Obama started talking about, like, amnesty for these girls. And then when Trump became president, he canceled that. And so I went back into this, okay, you know, what do we do with this? And then a set of girls were on International Women's Day, they were protesting their treatment in this girl's home that they were all living in, getting abused by men. And they had gotten locked into this house and they set the house on fire in order to attempt to escape. And they ended up dying in the fire, all except one girl. And that 
completely broke my heart. And I got into this thing where I wasn't sleeping and I was just working constantly on these issues. And I have lupus and I started to feel sick and my doctor changed my medication. And I had made this kind of one mistake on one of the web pages and my boss saw it and and it was just like a tiny tiny like a letter that was off and she said Katrina I don't know you made this mistake and you've been sick and it's you know she goes between this and your illness it's it's like you're half an employee and when she said that I started doing this circular thinking in my brain and I felt like really bad about myself. Like I wasn't bringing my best self to this fight to save these children. And I started thinking, oh gosh, I'm half an employee. I'm half a wife. I'm half a mother. And, and I was in so much pain because whatever medication I was on wasn't working. I was walking around like an old lady and I just felt like I was a useless person. And my therapist ended up lying to me. She says, you need a medication change and you need medication. Go to the hospital and there's medication waiting for you, but you have to go to the emergency room to get it. And so I say, okay. And I go to the emergency room at New York Presbyterian. And when I get there, I said, yeah, my therapist said that I'm here to get assessed for medication. And the woman said, okay, hold on. And a police officer comes out and says, follow me. And at the point I said, oh, crap, <laughs> I'm getting ready to get locked up. And that's what happened. They took me to this room and they, they said, yeah, you're here for evaluation. And I stayed there for a month and a half and they told me, that I was suffering a psychosis due to the lupus medication that they had me on. And they had to wean me off of that medication and put me back on the, the original medication. Your therapist had you committed? Yep. Do you feel like you needed to be committed? I did. I did, but I felt betrayed at the same time. Okay. That's why I was like, wait, let me come back <laughs> and ask. Because as I was reading the book, I was like, are you okay? Is she okay? Because, and I guess that aside from are you okay, which is a, a hard question to answer because of everything that you tackle in the book, I'm wondering, is it because of the work that you were doing, the helplessness you felt towards that work, then triggering your depression, your lupus, that also had you, you know, going back to all of the things that you survived as a child and a young adult that's all coming out on the page. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that question of am I okay? I don't know. I try mm. to be okay. <laughs> uh in the when I was in the hospital, they they talk about you know, we're not here to help you be happy. We're here to make you functional. And that seems hella rude. <laughs> it 
it's New York. What do you want? <laughs> They're rude. <laughs> but I guess that truth helped me a lot that I don't have to be happy. There, I have many happy days and I have many sad days. And I just look at things as temporary states now. You know, if I get to a point where I'm sad about something, I don't see it as hopeless. I just see it as a state of being right now. And so now that we've got all that backstory, let's do the reading. Because like I said, I I read the collection and it was a lot, but it is beautiful. Thank you. Black and published family, it's time for the reading. Katrina Canyon's poetry collection, Surviving Home, is a beautifully written and yet horrifyingly honest depiction of her lived experiences and how she's chosen to tell the truth, no matter how hard, traumatic, or painful. A trait she attributes to her mother, who told her to never be ashamed. Here's Katrina. This first poem is Involuntary Endurance. It is the first poem in the collection, and I wrote it to introduce the collection. Involuntary Endurance. My story is not one revealed with chapter and verse. It is expressed in blood and bone. It is fingernails thrust into back muscles. It is razor blades pressed against flesh. It is told by how the shark swims through the ocean below a school of tuna, and it is not the shark story. It is the school of tuna searching along the vast, dark, but sunlight-speckled ocean while knowing they have everywhere and nowhere in the world to flee. It is the brown bear pulling honey from the honeycomb in order to teach cubs to survive on their own. It is not the mother bear's story. It belongs to the cubs who wander the forest without her after she sacrificed her life to a boar grizzly to protect them. It is told through hot cylinders of pain that sear experience into the skin. It is told in front of the sharp bayonet that sprays blood-red existence against the multicolored palette of the universe. It may sit silent and still on these black and white pages but it exists in every tremble of my leathered hand and it is smeared into every tear-stained scream that flows through my quavering pen. This next one is, I wish I could tell you this has a happy ending. I held the knife in my hand. I propped open the blade. I sharpened it against petrified wood but I could not slice my flesh. It is not that I fear pain or the blood. I'm familiar with both. I am a woman after all. The world blinds me with its whiteness. I must pretend happiness exists when I can see nothing. I don't know if I'll make it. I don't know if there will be mourning. I have already pondered chasing the seagulls from my balcony. I have no trust in humanity. I lost that when I was three. It was baked in a pan of cornbread and eaten by demons. Life is a gift I cannot seem to appreciate right now, but I have to make it through the night. 
help me. Sojourner, truth is where I found you, in the cusp high over ultraviolet waves, between your time as a slave and mine fighting off the results of bondage. You were a woman who accepted no excuses for the lack of rights for our mothers and daughters, demanded more for those who followed. I am a woman who accepts that most white men are fixed on one idea as to how the world should be, and it is on me to change their minds through words or actions, but never through swords or guns. White bonnet wrapped around on my head as I push away racial insults and profanity. You never forgot to say who a woman could be, what a Black woman can do when she eschewed weakness and misogyny. No one helped you. You just carved a trail. No one helps me either. That's what I learned it means to be a Black woman, to be strong, to plow, to plant, to raise barns. That's what you did. I do that metaphorically. Now, I raise children, plow through my journals with my pen. I always remember to never pin my tongue for fear of others' thoughts. This is the way you walked. I try to get my half measure full, but I think it is a little less difficult for me as it was for you. Thank you for the quarter you earned. It took us a long way, but today the world is still turned upside down and we are working hand by hand to flip it right side up. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like the collection is the tone of the collection is right in those opening lines. My story is not one revealed with chapter and verse. It's expressed in blood and bone. And you cover poverty, addiction, homelessness, domestic and sexual abuse, and what it means to mother and what it was like for you to be mothered. Were you able to excise all the trauma that you experienced by writing it down in this collection? Or are you still having to reconcile your past with where you are now in your present? I'm still reconciling my past. This is not a complete collection of everything that's happened to me in my life. I don't talk about getting strangled or the many times that I've almost been shot or the multiple times I've been raped. You know, I mention some of the instances, but I didn't write Surviving Home thinking, you know, I'm going to sit down and write a book about my trauma. That just wasn't what was happening. That trauma was what was coming out of me at the time. And right now, you know, what's coming out of me is this anger about Black men dying. I'm angry instead of hurt and struggling. I think the next set of collections will be about the anger that I feel about being Black in this country. Given the work that you do and the nature of this collection, do you think you try to find the beauty in the chaos and the pain in the experiences of your life? I definitely do. That one poem, I Say You Can't Go Home Again, when I was living in that house in Paris, California, not Paris, France, but 
I, you know, I talk about the roses and how gorgeous they were and looking out the window. And I remember that as if it were yesterday and just staring out that window and just thinking about how beautiful it was outside and, and just pushing my fantasy beyond that outside of someday living in New York, of going to a college like Columbia or Barnard and having a life where I wasn't there. You know, my mind was always trying to find focus on the beautiful thing so that I didn't have to focus on the ugliness around me. Do the roses remind you of your mom? Yeah, they do, definitely. I have roses all around my house. Uh, she had the most amazing green thumb. That house in Paris was ridiculous. We were so poor and and we had like we lived on this it was like something like five acres and and she had all of these roses. And not only that, she she had like a garden where she planted vegetables and this was in the desert and we had like a lawn that this woman maintained in, in the desert. But yeah, she had the most amazing green thumb and she loved roses. She would see roses. She legit would see roses while walking down the street. She'd be like, oh, that's really nice. And she'd just go take the scissors, clip off a piece, and then she'd bring it home and stick it in a Stick it in a jar of water, and the next thing we I know, we have a new rose bush. Yeah, <laughs> that's how <laughs> my mom rolled, and she's always like had this thing of you always look for treasure. Like she was kind of always like had her eyes out for things. There was a day she was like, "Oh, those are some pecan trees. I need to remember that in the fall." And then there was this one night, and it was like pouring down rain and wind, and she's like, "Katrina, we gotta go." And she takes me and puts me in the car and it's just like pouring down rain. And she's like, yeah, the pecans are going to be just ready to go. So we get to Lake Elsinore and there are just pecans all like all over the all ground. And she's like, okay, get it. Let's scoop it up. Hurry. And it's just like in the rain, soaking wet with rain. And we're like filling up the trunk of our car with all these pecans and because she's from Louisiana. So. Oh, so she made pralines. I already know. <laughs> I already know where this was going. As soon as you said that, she made pralines. Yes, she indeed. Did. Oh, my gosh. She made the best pralines. But we call, she just call them candy. She's like, here's your mm-hmm. candy. And she's like, like filled up the, the back thing with, um, with, it was just filled. And then she would, she laid them out and dried them out. And then she put a sign out in front of the house, like pecans. <laughs> <laughs> seven dollars or whatever it was i remember but i was like my mom she just would just do stuff like that and or like then you know sometimes we just flat out stole stuff like going by the grapevine because the grapevine in california used to be like oh my gosh there would be so many grapes but my dad would pull over and be like okay let's go let's all get out of the car and get some grapes and we'd fill up the trunk with grapes (laughs) It's the trunk for me, though. 
<laughs> I know you said your mom passed and you are, yeah. you have now outlived how old she lived to be. What do you think she would say about your collection? Oh, I asked my uncle about that. Um, my aunt was married, my uncle, and she and my mom were best friends growing up. And she said that my mom would be really proud of me and would be okay with me telling these stories and telling the truth. Uh, when I was six years old, about five or six, we were living in Inglewood and my dad had beat my mom horribly. And she took off to the fire station down the street and the police came by and they asked, you know, what happened? And my grandmother and my aunt were out there because my aunt lived across the street and my grandma lived with us. And they said, well, we didn't see anything. And I said, I know I saw it all at, you know, five years old. And I said, yeah, Floyd. And I called my father Floyd. I said, Floyd beat Josephine up and down the street. And they were like, do you know where your father is now? I said, no, he took off in the car. And they said, they said, what kind of car? And I said, told them the car. I told them the license plate number. And they said, thank you very much, little girl. And my aunt and my grandmother were really angry with me. They called me an evil little child. And I was like, I didn't understand that. It was because I was just, I was like, I just told the truth. They asked a question and I gave an answer. I didn't think about what that would have done, could have done to my father, which it did. They beat, they beat the crap out of him. But after when my mother came home with that and, and I felt so bad about it, and I still feel bad about it today. She told me that I was somebody who was a truth teller and never to be ashamed of that. Hmm. Are you proud of you? You said your aunt told you that your mother would be proud of you and that your mother called you a truth teller. Ooh. Are you proud of you for telling the truth? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, oh, that's a big question. Am I proud of me? No, I am not proud of me. <laughs> I feel like um, that there's a lot more that I should do. And I have children that I'm proud of. And I'm proud of this work, Surviving Home. But as about being proud of myself as a person, that is a very hard question to answer. But I don't think I'm proud of myself. I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working on it. But no, I don't think I'm proud of myself. You called the collection Surviving Home. Would you say that you are a survivor or have survived? Or are you still in process? Every day for me is a matter of survival, of especially when I'm depressed. And I am just trying to get through the day, trying to get through the day without going to that dark place. Being a survivor is, is a day-to-day -day thing. And 
sometimes when I sign my book, I will I will say we are all survivors. And especially with COVID, that is true. If we make it through the end of the day and we're still here, it's a process that we all go through every single day. We're all survivors when we get through the day. So I want to switch to my speed round in my game before I let you go for the morning. What is your favorite book? Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. Who is your favorite author? Um, it's going to sound odd, <laughs> but I really love Russian literature. Um, so I would have to say that I like Tolstoy quite a bit and Chekhov. And and to me, I would read Chekhov's short stories, and they really spoke to the Black experience. <laughs> Russians know how to speak to the Black experience. I know that sounds crazy to say, but they Considering do. the war, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your favorite poet? When I started off as a kid, my mother gave me a collection of Edgar Allan Poe when I was like five years old. So... Edgar Allan Poe will always be my favorite poet. But then after that, I would go to Audre Lorde, Wanda Coleman. Living would be James Everett Jones. Tracy K. Smith is another one. Right now I'm reading Shadow Folk and Soul Song by Matthew Johnson. But yeah, I, Audre Lorde, James Everett Jones, Wanda Coleman, Sharon Smith-Knight. All great poets. So similarly, name a poet who doesn't get enough recognition. That would definitely be James Everett Jones. <laughs> I'm telling you. I And the thing that he's putting, he's been around since, I don't know, for 30 odd years. And I think his he's just publishing his first collection this coming year. Got it. Um, you mentioned before that you were trained by slam poets before you became poet laureate. Um, mm -hmm. So what is the difference in your opinion, if there is one, between poetry and spoken word? Spoken word is a type of poetry, but the poetry is in the voice and the sound and the pauses and you are you are having an affectation to your words when you use spoken word while poetry is more about the craft of the writing how the poem sits on the page if money were no option where would you go what would you do and where would you live if money were no option i would probably go back to portugal i would do what I do. I'd be writing poetry. And that's where I come into conflict. If I were just thinking about me and being happy, I would go to Portugal. But there's so much going on in the United States. I'd feel, I'd feel selfish being in Portugal right now. Don't you deserve to be selfish? <laughs> Oh, people tell me I do. <laughs> but you people haven't believed it yet. I've gone through enough and to just sit down and be, go somewhere and be happy. 
but uh, it's hard for me to think about being selfish when there are so many people struggling there. I think about how as a kid, I wanted just wanted so bad for someone to help me when I was, mm. when I was on the streets and I thought, and after my mother died and I was feeling so alone, I just wanted someone to say, this really is horrible. What's happening to you here? Let me help you. And that didn't happen. Mm. And I don't want to be that person who walks by because I know what that feels like. So what brings you joy? I get a lot of joy in my flowers and my plants, my children, my grandchildren. What brings you peace? Poetry, reading poetry, writing poetry, being with other people who enjoy poetry. That brings me peace. So my game is called Rewriting the Classics. Three questions. <laughs> Name one book you wish you would have written. Mm. Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote this collection of poetry that Maya Angelou did the Cage Bird conversation with. So I think that, I don't know if it would be rewriting as much as a conversation. I would like to go like poem for poem. I know like Maya Angelou did his unwell and her caged bird kind of like as that conversation um and i can see why she did it because we're still struggling with the same things that he brought up in that collection name one book where you want to change the ending and how would you do it i go back to the invisible man and the character is left wandering and lost at the end of the novel. And I would want to like have some sense of peace to overcome. And even though I'm like not the queen of overcoming, but <laughs> to like overcome all of this trauma that he sees throughout the novel and not be left just wandering and hopeless for him to like finally just be free and successful. That would have been a nice ending to see. And then finally, name a book that you think is overrated and why? <laughs> oh my gosh. I never think of books that way. Oh, wait. There was this book and Tom Hanks starred in it and... It was like the cloud. Cloud Atlas? That one, yes. The Cloud Atlas. Horrible book to me. <laughs> I was, And I was the only one who read it. It was like this book club. We had this book club and someone was like, oh, we have to read the Cloud Atlas. And it was long and sloggy. And people were saying, oh my gosh, this is such an amazing book. And it was, to me, very overrated. Got it. And so my final question for you today is, when you are dead and gone and no longer here, what would you want someone to write about the words that you left behind? I think that I went through so much at the beginning of establishing myself as a poet with the, where did you go to school? Where did you study? Uh, I think I would want people to acknowledge the skill 
that I used in writing these poems and to acknowledge like the work and the poetic devices that I use and embrace. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you. Big thank you to Katrina Canyon for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Katrina's debut poetry collection, Surviving Home. And if you're not following Katrina, follow her on the socials. She's at Poetic Cat on Twitter and Instagram. And that's P-O-E-T-I-C-K-A-T on Twitter and P-O-E-H-T-I-C-K-A-T on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Katrina about the one takeaway she wants all readers to receive from her words. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holla at y'all next week. Peace.